From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. So we've been talking a lot on this podcast about the international negotiations that will change the way multinationals are taxed around the world. And we're going to keep talking about it because it's a really, really, really big deal. Last month saw the resolution of these negotiations. Nearly 140 countries signed on to an agreement to create a 15% global minimum tax rate for corporations and to reallocate a portion of the largest multinational companies' profits to more countries. But the work doesn't stop there, not by a long shot. Now governments across the world have to implement both of these pillars over the next two years. And for multinational companies, this could bring significant change to the global landscape they're operating in. To talk about this, Bloomberg Tax's Isabel Gottlieb spoke to Manal Corwin, the principal in charge of KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Corwin looked ahead to what's next for the global plan, how companies may be affected, and what they're doing now to prepare. So Manal, thanks so much for joining us this week. So to start, can you put some context around this? Um, Speaking broadly, how significant are these changes going to be to multinationals? Well, first of all, Isabel, thanks for having me. Um, I, I do think when you look at the news that we've seen um, over the last several weeks, um, what we are talking about is, um, you know, pretty pretty significant. The agreement, I think, is significant because those 136 jurisdictions represent roughly 90% of global GDP. Um, and of course, we've seen subsequently to the releases that we saw coming out of the OECD, um, memorializing the agreement that the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors have endorsed the agreement. And, and then just last uh, week or just over the weekend, the G20 leaders having endorsed them. So significant in terms of the scope of political consensus, as well as um, just the, the number of, of changes or potential changes, assuming this continues to go forward. Um, that we could see in in, uh, the global tax system. Now, the October agreement, uh, the governments confirmed the large political parameters of the plan. We got the 15% minimum rate. Um, We got confirmation on the numbers describing how much profit will be reallocated. But there are still some questions still left open as governments work through the details of implementation. Um, We're going to see them work through those remaining details as they draft model legislation for Pillar 2, the minimum tax rules, and create a multilateral convention, a big treaty for all the countries to sign under um, Pillar 1, the reallocation rules. So I wanted to talk about some of those open questions um, and thinking about the ones that companies are watching particularly closely. So I think um, when you think about what what's open, what's left open, there are a number of key design features associated with with these two pillars um, of of reforms. So with respect to this first pillar, I think additional detail on um, the way that the the scope is going to work. There, we're still waiting for information about exclusions, industries that will be excluded, for example, um, for fi- financial services, um, regulated financial services. Some detail around who will be included and who will not be included. Um, importantly, there's a lot of work on tax certainty um, in order for the, the the Pillar 1 tax rules to work. Um, you need uh, a mechanism for dispute prevention and resolution. So what are the mechanics of those are going to look like? And um, importantly, what are the mechanics for relieving double taxation to make sure that this new tax doesn't cause uh, companies uh, to be paying 
more than one level of tax on the same stream of income. We're also uh, continuing to hear about um, getting certainty around making sure that unilateral measures that exist uh, right now are removed. Um, Part of the the deal and the agreement was in exchange for getting a new taxing right um, that countries would agree to roll back any unilateral taxes that have been um, uh, adopted already and referred to um, as DSTs or digital services taxes but also other unilateral measures and um, making sure that we understand both the timing um, as well as uh, the the mechanics of when those taxes will be lifted. We heard some information um, recently about a deal that was struck with some countries, but there's more to go. On the global minimum tax, um, you know, same thing. We need more detail on the architecture um, for the rules. Um, the, the, this, the second pillar of the global minimum tax is a common approach, so maybe not every country adopts, but if countries um, do adopt, they need to follow the common approach, and then for countries who choose not to adopt, they need to accept the application of the rules to their, um, their multinationals. So that's one set of things. You know, how is the mechanics of this going to unfold? But the other really, really important thing to watch right now is while we've seen um, uh, progress on a political consensus and, you know, pretty um, impressive that they've gotten 136 jurisdictions on board to achieve these changes uh, in global tax standards um, and agreements. Um, It is just that a political agreement. Um, It is a statement of intent to support uh, this movement, but that political agreement needs to be converted to a legally binding commitment. And that process requires changes in each of the uh, uh, domestic laws, you know, of of each jurisdiction. And because of different countries have different parliamentary systems, the the actual conversion of a political commitment into a legal commitment um, will be the important next step to see if they can actually deliver on on the promise of, of the agreement. I'm thinking about the the timeline ahead over the next few months. Um, We're expecting to see model legislation for Pillar 2. These would be rules that countries could adopt into their own domestic legislation, um, released by the OECD prospectively in November. And the EU has said that it's going to issue a directive on Pillar 2 so that all 27 member states um, adopt Pillar 2 uniformly in late December. Um, The OECD's text for the multilateral convention, which is going to implement Pillar 1, should come out sometime next year. Um, And while all of this is going on, we did just see a new text for a proposed bill from the House, which could include, um, will include details on how the U.S. minimum tax uh, might change under U.S. changes um, and bring it more in line with Pillar 2. With all of this coming down the road, um, what are some of the key issues we might look for um, in as each of these documents is released um, and as the U.S. legislation is finalized and passed? Uh, what, what questions will we see answered kind of stage by stage here? Um, yeah, I mean, the first set of things that we're going to be looking for um, is what are what are the agreed details um, and the mechanics for the rules? Um, so, the, because again, if there's not a common understanding of how to apply these rules, given that they are a series of coordinated efforts across jurisdictions, it's going to be difficult to get to, to stand this up. So, you know, that's the first thing you want to look for is where do they land on, on the architecture and mechanics? 
The next thing you look for is, are we seeing um, the, the domestic legislatures or parliaments um, get comfortable with adopting these rules as agreed um, at the OECD? In the case of, of the U.S., as we watch the various versions of, of tax proposals come out, you are look at, you're going to be looking for, is there alignment in what, um, what the uh, Congress is contemplating in terms of reforms? Is there alignment with what is agreed or committed to at the OECD? Um, you'll also be looking to see if the uh, architect, the, the mechanical changes, the you know the under the OECD version of this, the approach to determining whether you've achieved the minimum tax is done on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. That would be an adaptation that doesn't currently exist under our system, and you you're looking to see if the proposal would align um, with uh, with the the global agreement to go jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Again, we are seeing the proposals. Uh, so far, to date, have been have consistently adapted an approach that is in alignment. So you'll be looking to find that alignment. But importantly, you'll also be looking to see to what extent the the um, representatives in Congress are comfortable moving ahead of where the OECD might be going. So we know that the OECD has an aggr- set out an aggressive timeline, but as a realistic matter. Um, the the timing of when some of these changes at the OECD level will actually be, come into effect, um, including you know having a min tax, is relevant for um, for at the timing of when we make the changes in the U.S. So among the things being discussed are having some of these these reforms, but having delayed effective dates for the reforms to better align with the timing of when the OECD is going to, um, the OECD members are likely to have adopted into their own jurisdictions. So all of those are going to be important things to watch for, and all are going to be signals as to whether this ultimately, um, this the, the global deal will ultimately be able to come fully into um, to existence. I'd like to uh, shift our focus a little bit now and look at where companies stand at this point, what all of this means for companies. Um, To start, can you walk us through who's affected um, both under Pillar 1, the reallocation rules, and under Pillar 2? These two pillars have different scopes. They're aiming to do different things. Um, So what what kind of set or group of companies um, will be affected by each pillar? Um, By their terms, uh, the two pillars have scope um, that has a direct impact on on certain categories of companies. You know, big picture, um, these are rules that will impact multinational corporations in terms of their direct impact. Um, with respect to Pillar 1, the, the focus for now is on the largest and most profitable businesses. So businesses that are in scope, um, you know, at least initially with respect to Pillar 1 are ones that have global turnover above 20 um, billion euro and a profitability above 10%. Um, And then with respect to pillar two, in general, we are looking at multinationals that meet a 750 million um, euro threshold. So in terms of direct impact, those are the companies that are paying the most attention at the moment to these uh, these provisions. Um, But it's important to um, also note that um, you know, there's there's some indirect impacts or longer term um, views that that I think are relevant here. You know, first with respect to Pillar One, there's already built into the agreement 
um, that the, the scope will expand from this 20 billion euro threshold to a 10 billion euro threshold in, in seven years. So that could have a broader implication. Um, uh, with respect to pillar two, even though in general the, the rules apply, uh, the standard is with respect to uh, companies that are at the 750 million euro threshold, um, there, you know, there, there are components of pillar two that when domestically adopted com- com- countries may choose to apply um, without regard to that threshold. In addition, um, I think there are companies that might be impacted indirectly because the changes, some of the changes that are contemplated um, if this global agreement again comes, uh, comes into existence may change domestic policy choices um, or other policy choices that countries are going to make. So for example, um, you, know, you have some countries think, uh, discussing the possibility of adopting alternative minimum taxes um, in order to ensure that this global min tax when applied, um, it, it would not, the revenue wouldn't go to another country and, and, and a countermeasure to that would be to adopt either some form of soak up tax or, or global min tax that would pick up revenue that might, might otherwise be exposed under pillar two to the taxing rights of a, of a different jurisdiction. For the companies that are in scope of either or both pillars, what are they or what can they be doing at this point to prepare? And I'm thinking about things like modeling revenue impacts or working out effective tax rates that they'll have to calculate under a pillar two. Um, what does that process look like at this point? What are some of those considerations? Um, what sort of what are companies doing doing right now? Yeah, no, I think the com- companies are focusing um, on what's happening and, and reacting, you know, at different levels of the company, we're seeing different responses. Um, so, at, you know, a lot of interest, um, I think, at the, the C-suite, CFO level and board level as to what's what's happening, just because, you know, this is all, it's front page news. There is this potential for these tectonic plate changes in, in what's go- the way that the tax system um is going to operate. And so what we're seeing is the interest at that level is on what is happening, wanting to stay informed and wanting to understand what the likelihood of impact is and perhaps uh, the, you know, the, the scope of impact. In contrast, what we see um, at the tax director level is a, a real focus on what is the likely outcomes of various scenarios and the need to start modeling impact. And that impact can vary from just what is the additional potential tax cost associated with the change to just the impact of, of um, compliance, the cost of compliance, the need for maintaining um, records differently or having data that might not otherwise have been tracked for particular reasons because of the way that the rules are, are coming into shape. Um, and so that modeling um, and inter- there's, there's, is, is, is a critical part of that. Um, and the, the rules, there's a lot of interdependencies here. Again, we are talking about changes that are going to have to result in domestic law changes, but are going to intersect with existing uh, laws. It's not a wholesale change in the tax rules, but it's additional rules that are going to be impact and interdependent. And it's complicated. It is not intuitive to see directionally what um, what the impact of a particular change is going to have on the, the, both the tax cost and the administrative burden. And so modeling has become a really important part of 
getting your arms around that. That was Manal Corwin, the principal in charge of the Washington National Tax Practice at KPMG, speaking with Bloomberg Tax's Isabel Godley. You can find up-to-the-minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. And if you have any thoughts about this, get in touch with us on Twitter. We use the handle at tax. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, along with Isabel Gottlieb and Meg Shreve. Patrick Ambrosio is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.